You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Welcome. Uh, the Ukrainian Studies Initiative is happy to welcome you to uh, talk. And the Ukrainian Studies Initiative is uh, an effort at the UW to help support Ukrainian Studies events. There'll be some flyers outside uh, if you want to learn more about that. And events like this are supported by listeners like you. So uh, if you are interested in events like this, uh, please find us on uh, the internet, on Facebook, we have a Facebook page, and um, join us in um, making things like this happen. Uh, today, I am very honored to welcome Professor Serhii Plohi. He is the Mikhailo Hrushevsky Professor of Ukrainian History at Harvard. He is also the director of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. Um, he received his undergrad degree from the University of Dnipropetrovsk, 1980, uh, and then his graduate degree officially from the Russian University of Friendship of Peoples, 1982, although as I found out today that um, he defended it there but did most of the studies in Ukraine, uh, and his habilitation degree from Tarasovchenko National University in Kiev in 1990. And he taught at University of Dnipropetrovsk and then since 1996 has been in North America. Uh, including an appointment at the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies. And he has been at Harvard since 2007. And I had the pleasure of getting to know Dr. Plochy when we were both uh, visiting fellows at Harvard University in 2002. We were just reminiscing about the uh, wonderful grouping of fellows that, that we had there. Um, Professor Plochy is the author of numerous books. I tried to count them. I think it's 13, with the 14th one coming out next month. One or two of those I think may be co-authored, but most of them you know, blows my mind at how amazingly prolific Professor Plochy is, and not just pr prolific, but really engaging and fun to read. Um, these books have won numerous awards and uh, been translated into different languages. And uh, some of them read like spy novels, like The Man with the Poison Gun, uh, in which Dr. Plochy traces the history of the assassination of Stefan Bandera and the practice of use of clandestine poison. Um, today, Dr. Plochy will talk about his book, The Lost Kingdom. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Plochy. Uh, Thank you very much for this wonderful introduction and generous introduction. Uh, thank you very much for coming today. It's, it's a big honor and pleasure for me to come here. Uh, it was mentioned that I, for some period of time, was at the University of Alberta, and it was always my dream that never was realized at that time to come to come to Seattle and come to the University of Washington. So I'm happy that finally I am maybe twenty years later I realized that I realized that dream. 
Uh, I'm also grateful to the uh, uh, Ukraine Initiative for inviting me. My talk today will be about the book that deals mostly with Russia, but deals with Russia in the way that engages Ukraine in a major way, Ukraine uh, and Belarus as well. Um, the uh, two covers that you see here, um, they, uh, one of them is, uh, was issued by the American publisher, another by the British publisher, and they have different, different artwork and also they have different subtitles, but basically it's, it's the same book. The uh, British uh, publisher was more interested in nation and nationalism story, and the American publisher was more interested in the empire and imperial story. But the book is really brings together both nationalism and imperialism together when it comes to, to, the, uh, to the history of Russia, but also to the history of Ukraine and interrelation between, between empire and nation are at the center of what I'm trying to do. The title, what, what, what does it mean, Lost Kingdom? What I have in mind is the history of the Kievan Rus, the medieval principality, that the historical mythology, historical research in three East, East Slavic countries of Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus, they all trace the roots of, of their state, their legislation, the dynasty, the, the, the language, uh, the written work to the history of Kievan Rus. And what I'm trying to say in, in uh, this book, one of the, of the storylines there is that uh, when it comes to the Russian understanding of, of the history, Russian understanding of geopolitical space, this presence of the Kievan Rus as the, as the um, paradise lost to a degree a place where the, the unity was there is still very much in the, in the mind of, of uh, Russian uh, um, public, but also more important maybe given the, the authoritarian tendency in today's Russia in the, Russian, in the minds of the Russian leaders. For example, um, President Putin keeps, uh, keeps basically saying again and again in the middle of this conflict, Russians and Ukrainians are the same people, and the references are clearly to the, to the lost unity of Kiev and Rus, and this attempts to rebuild and recreate that unity. So that's, that's on the, on the uh, uh, titles, and here you see, uh, in terms of the artwork, the 16th century painting of the Battle of Orshov, 1514, the, conquest, the contest for the, between Lithuania and Moscow for the lands of the Kiev and Rus, and over there, it's a uh, uh, Russian World War I poster from 1914 or 1915. Uh, so again, very different, very different take uh, between two publishers on, on what they wanted, they wanted the book to be about. Now, uh, let me uh, step back from, from the cover and title and, and set a broader uh, uh, con uh, uh, a broader frame for what I am going to talk about. Well, um, the history of the last hundred years, a little bit more than hundred years, was very much the history of the fall and disintegration of the empires. 
And uh, this is the map of the world in 1914. If you will compare with the map of the world of 2014 or 2018, something that is easier for you to do, so I don't have it on the, here on the screen. Well, we, we see much more, the, the, the current map is much more colorful and there are much more spots on, on, on that map. And that's the story of the disintegration of the empires. And when we talk about disintegration of the empires, what we normally have in mind are places like uh, India or, or Zimbabwe. So the, the, the decolonization process, the uh, post-World War II developments of, of 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. So that's what, what immediately comes to mind when people talk about, about fall of the empires in the 20th century. But the last uh, maybe five to 10 years brought in also a different dimension and different understanding uh, to what, what disintegration of empires really can mean. And what we see now are a certain tensions and, and the, the, the processes of disintegration within what was considered to be the core of the global empires. Britain, for example, with, with the idea of the Scottish independence is, is just one of those examples. This is, this is the metropolis. That's the place, that's the center that created all this whole empire. So the disintegration of the empires from that point of view doesn't mean only India or Ireland for that matter. It means also tensions within the former imperial core. And of course the Brits are not, not the only ones who, uh, and not the, the, the owners of, by any stretch of imagination, the oldest empire, the Spanish empire is much older. So we, we see what is, what is happening there now. Again, it's not, it's not losing Latin America. It's, it's tensions within something that was considered to be the absolute, absolute core of the empire. And from that point of view, when we think about the East European history, when we think about the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, we can see very much, very much uh, in common with what is happening actually with the cores and centers of other empires. Russia, of course, uh, proverb or the Soviet Union was basically known up until 1991 as Russia. It was the disintegration of the Soviet Union that opened eyes to the world that, okay, well, Russia is a big and was a big part of, of the story, but there were also others as well. And those others include in particularly Ukraine and the Ukrainians, the second largest ethnic group, economy, and so on and so forth within, within the Soviet Union. So what we see starting with 1991, and now in the current conflict and war in Eastern Ukraine and annexation of the Crimea, we see to a degree processes that are not so unique to Eastern Europe or to the, to the, to, to the Russian-Ukrainian relations. We see the, the, the process of the reformatting of relations within something that was for a long period of time a core of the empire and, and the fall of the, 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 the periphery of the empire brings also this, this conflicts these conflicts within it, if you think that people like Khrushchev or people like Brezhnev with deep roots in Ukraine were at the center of what was the Soviet Union during the Cold War, that's, that's, that's where the, the um, 
parallel, parallel with that's Britain or, 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 or Spain comes to the fore. Now, I don't like this, this image because the quality is so poor. But I couldn't find a better one because, because it reflects so well what one, one, of the, one of the themes that I'm discussing in my book. So what uh, Mr. Putin is in, allegedly engaged in here, he is basically trying to, to cover the, 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 the Ukrainian colors and the banner with, with the Russian one. So basically, he, he's in the process of repainting and re, renaming, reconfiguration, reimagining of what, what that banner is. And this is, this is exactly what is very much at the center, at the center of events that we have, we have today in Ukraine. Uh, Mr. Putin, and I mentioned that before, uh, more than once, it seems to me eight times, uh, went on records stating again and again, Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. What he has in mind is not, of course, that Russians are Ukrainians. What he has in mind is that the Ukrainians are really Russians. So that's, that's just to be, to be clear on that side, and that's, that's, that's image what, what, is, uh, what uh, shows that. And it is trying to, to basically understand not so much Vladimir Putin per se, but, but the, 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 the image, the, the, the message uh, of, of Russians and Ukrainians be the same, and at the same time the war is going on and annexation is taking place. So trying to deal with this, with this puzzle is, is what I'm trying to do in the book by tracing the story from the uh, creation of the modern Russian state in uh, the late, uh, not modern Russian state, but, but creation of what would become uh, modern Russian statehood. In the in the late uh, 15th century, up to the up to the events now in Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, and I start my book with the um, uh, description of this monument in the center of Moscow, which was opened by Vladimir Putin in November of 2016. Uh, this is a monument to uh, Prince uh, Vladimir, as he is known in Russia, and Prince Volodymyr, as he is known in uh, Ukraine. He ruled in the place uh, which is Kiev, which is now capital of Ukraine. And uh, uh, the, if, if you look at, at the year when the monument was uh, created and, and, and tried to make sense out of it, while well, in the middle of the conflict in 2016 between Russia and Ukraine, at the most central part in the center of the Russian capital, across the, the square from Kremlin, is erected a monument to the prince who ruled in the capital of the neighboring state. So what, 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 what do you do about that? What, what, what does this mean? Well, one explanation is, is that, well, the monument is really not to Prince Vladimir, no matter where, where, where he ruled. The monument is to the Vladimir who is now in Kremlin, uh, which is, again, I, 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 take, I, I take that that's a big part of the story. But still, to do that with the help of the, of the ruler from a neighboring state is, is, is a little bit a stretch. But there is not a stretch if you basically, again, believe Russians and Ukrainians are the same people and, and, and Kievan Rus, Kievan Rus is, is the place where, where it all started. 
what is interesting about that, that monument is also that it's a second or maybe third monument to, to the same prince of, of big significance and, and, and big symbolical uh, meaning. The first one was created in the mid-19th uh, century in the place called Kiev, so where, where uh, Vladimir or Volodymyr ruled, which at least historically, geographically makes, makes more sense. And there it was the monument about basically the claim, the, the imperial claim, the Russian imperial claim for the territory which before that used to be part of Poland, which was ethnically non-Russian, which was dominated culturally, politically, economically by the Polish elite. So that was a claim for Russianness of, of what, is, what is today Ukraine. Now we have this monument in Moscow, and again, the, the, the question is open, what, how to interpret it, and what that means. Whether this is actually, someone reasserts the, the claim for, for Kiev, or this is something that the monuments that represent that claim are moving further, further east. And again, we, we can, we can uh, look at that in both ways. Now, uh, just to, to provide some background in terms of what I mean when, uh, for those of you who maybe uh, uh, don't study uh, Ukrainian, Russian, East European history for living or, or didn't take courses, that's wonderful courses that are offered at this university. So this is, this is the map of that, of that place that I am talking about, the, the Kievan Rus, which is, um, again was centered in Kyiv and uh, covered good part of what is today Ukraine, Belarus, and good part of today's uh, European Russia. Um, uh, the, the unity of, 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 of these lands, again, is something that, uh, that is very much at the center of the Russian historical narrative. And, uh, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't that always. So when uh, Vladimir Putin opens monument to Prince Vladimir in Moscow, that's, that's the, 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 the state, that's the, the country that he has in mind. And it includes both Ukrainian, Belarusian, and Russian territories. But again, it's not always that people in Moscow believed that their origins are in Kyiv. And the, the, the story of close connection between Moscow and Kyiv in the creation of that particular type of historical inter interpretation starts with the creation of an independent Russian state after the Mongol, after the Mongol rule, under Ivan III. So this is the second half of the, uh, the second half of the 15th century. And at that time, the territories of, of uh, Moscow extend from that dark green part to lighter green part, including big parts of, of um, uh, northern uh, Russia, which were under the control, under the jurisdiction of the Novgorodian Republic. Novgorod was a major trading post in the, in the, in the Baltics. And it was in the context of the, of the laying claim for control over Novgorod, because Moscow was one of the centers, Novgorod was another, there were others as well, that the idea of the Kievan origins of the Moscow dynasty becomes really central. 
Why it is central? Because Novgorod is part of the former Kievan Rus. So in what way the Moscovite prince can actually lay claim for, for Novgorod, which is independent and is supported by the Mongols, by the way, and by Lithuanians in, this, in their attempt to stay independent from Moscow? Well, the way how it is done is that, well, we are the dynasty that we are continuation of Kiev. Kiev has the right for Novgorod, so we in Moscow, we have the right for Novgorod. So that's for the first time how the idea of that brings eventually the monument to Vladimir to Moscow in 2016, that's where it starts and that's where it begins. It acquires a new, a new layer of complexity and, and a new legitimacy. When the, in the 17th century, the Russian border moves further west and includes Kiev. And that is happening under Alexei Mikhailovich, so mid-17th century, roughly 150, 200 years after this first imagining of why Kiev is important. And now the Kiev is already under the Moscow control. And you see the emergence of a different group who is pushing for this, for this idea that, okay, Kiev is really central for Russia. These people are the uh, Ukrainian clerks in the, not clerks, but clergy in the, in the Kiev. The city is on the border between Moscow and, uh, Moscow and Poland. They try to stay, they're Orthodox, they try to stay under the Russian Tsar, Orthodox Tsar, and they create something that becomes eventually the first printed history books, history book in Russia, which is called Synopsis. <coughs> in the 1670s, and they say that Kiev is important for Russia not only because this is the place from where the dynasty comes, this is also the place where the Russian nation comes from. So what you see is something that starts with, with, the, with the basically Russian claim in the 15th century and then is reinforced by something that people in Kiev are trying to say. Again, all of that is done for specific political purposes at a particular time, but eventually it acquires a, a Mm, uh, agency on, on its own and, and creates a tradition that becomes really very important from the 16th century to 17th to 18th century. And everything is going wonderful and perfect for this idea of the, of the big place originated in Kiev in terms of dynasty, in terms of religion, in terms of nation, up until 19th century, mid 19th century, when new ideas come to the fore. And those ideas are that actually nation is not about being under this ruler or other ruler. This is about language and this is about culture. And the place where these ideas are promoted is, again, Kiev. In uh, 1834, when the idea of building the first monument to Prince Volodymyr of Vladimir comes, comes to the fore to fight against the Polish influences, in Kiev they create uh, university that is supposed actually to train cadres that would prove that this land is actually Russian land. And they hire local, local people to teach in that university and teach history and, and do, do writing and, and do paintings. And one of people who was hired was Taras Shevchenko, who becomes a father of the modern Ukrainian nation another professor of history, of Russian history at, at uh, uh, Kiev University, whose name was Kastamarov, who was again hired for the same purposes, comes up with the political manifesto, the first political manifesto of what Ukrainians are. 
So the, the imperial policies and the creation of the university backfires, and that's, that's where the first, the first challenge to the idea that really Russia starts in Kiev comes from. And that's where the competition between Ukraine and Russia starts of who really, who's really Kiev was and, and where, where whose history starts. Well, this is, this is the photo from, uh, the, the, the building is there from 1830s. The monument is to Taras Shevchenko. And it was put in place of the monument to Nicholas I, the Tsar and Emperor of Russia, who founded the university and sent Shevchenko into exile because he didn't like the, the, the turn that, that he and Kostomarov and other took. So again, uh, the, now we have monument to Nicholas I replaced, replaced by monument to Taras Shevchenko. So you can guess who eventually won in Kiev in that battle over where, where history, where Ukrainian history starts and who, who Kiev belongs to. Uh, by 1917, you see these ideas of Shevchenko are being, and, and people around him are being already integrated in the structure of the Soviet Union, where the Russians are getting their own republic, which is called Russian Federation, and the Ukrainians are getting their own republic. By 1991, you see the, the pro-independence vote in Ukraine in December of 1991. Uh, but really bringing the, uh, within a few short weeks the, the collapse and, and disintegration of the Soviet Union. So um, the, the, uh, by the 20th century, there was already, uh, we have a very different understanding of what, what nations are. By the 20th century, no one already claims, the, uh, nobody, uh, questions the fact that Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians are separate groups. So even republics and, and state borders are, are there and state institutions are there. The question is only whether they should be part of the same state or they, they can go independent. In 1991, the idea is they should go independent. The Soviet Union falls very interestingly after the meeting of the three East Slavic <coughs> leaders. So all of them, they, they uh, trace their origins, their countries trace their origins to Kiev and Rus. Uh, but the debate, the big debate, it turned out actually was not over. And what we see in the last 10, 15 years is actually a replay of the same discussion and the same debate now with weapons, now with people being killed. And something that comes to the, to the fore is really very interesting. Again, it's the third time that I'm going back to this, to this uh, Vladimir Putin's insistence that Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. This is the idea that was there certainly before 1849. That was the idea that was there in a different form before 1917. But that was the idea that when it comes to the Soviet official ideology, to, to, to the state building and things like that, was basically outlawed in the, through the most of the 20th century. So now you see the ideas of 18th and 19th century are coming back and, and being replayed. And that's, that's what, what on, on the one hand, troublesome, very troublesome, on the other hand, provides an opening for historians like me 
try to, to look into what is going on and, and provide this, this broader explanation or, or deeper explanation, historical explanation to the, the crisis that is happening today in Ukraine. Now, this book is not trying to explain everything that is happening. There are all sorts of things from economy to geopolitics to uh, um, uh, the, the military balance in the region to, to, to NATO that are absolutely important and absolutely legitimate subjects for the discussion of the crisis. My book looks at a very specific issue within this crisis, and very important one, as I'm claiming, because the crisis is also about the definition of who Russians are and who Ukrainians are, and where Russia starts and where Russia ends and where Ukraine starts and Ukraine ends. And this is the debate that is not just led by, by the leaders, this is also the decisions that people in places like Donbass today in Eastern Ukraine are making on the, on the daily basis. And this is the decision with which group they identify themselves that ultimately can cause their, 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 their life or, or motivates them to go and join armies on the, on the different sides of the debate. So it's, it's what I'm talking about sounds actually very somewhere up there, deep, hidden deep in, in the past. These are, these are important things for, for the decisions that people make on, on, on the ground and, and, and pay, pay for, for those decisions. Now, all of that comes to the fore, of course, with the question, uh, with, with the uh, Ukrainian, with the Ukrainian um, Revolution of Dignity recently, but really starts with the Maidan, with the Orange Revolution of 2004. And uh, the, the, big, the big theme that was there uh, at, on, on, on the streets in Kiev, why people mobilized, in, in the, uh, there would be between half a million and a million people on the streets. It would be in the uh, <coughs> Celsius sub-zero temperatures. People would go on the street and would, leave, uh, would not leave the street for days and weeks and months. So that was, that was quite a commitment and quite a statement and wouldn't leave even when they, were shoot, uh, they, they, they started to shoot at them. Number one issue was basically the, 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 the unhappiness of the Ukrainian society with its own government, unhappiness with corruption. But then there was another factor that was of international importance. That was the orientation toward Europe. In Ukraine, they didn't know, they, 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 they knew quite well that the, the European Union is not extending at this point, that there is no hope of joining Europe. But that was the idea of bringing Europe to Ukraine in a sense of basically fighting the corruption, introducing a, a, a more fair system to conduct business, uh, uh, political uh, assuring the, the political pluralism and political freedom. So that was not about joining Europe by crushing the European party and, and, and becoming the member of European Union. That's about taking European standards and bringing to Ukraine. So, so that was one thing. And another thing was the emergence of Russia as, as, a, major, as a major factor uh, in, in those events with Russia actually uh, being extremely concerned that Ukraine would move westward, that Ukraine would lose, would, would, would actually leave the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the Russian space, the, 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 the sphere of influence of Russia. So something that, and, and 
that started certainly as a very internal uh, issue in relationship between the, the, the Ukrainians and their government turned into, into something that became also a geopolitical choice, cultural choice, linguistic choice, the choice of historical narratives that one country or other country accepts and, and promotes. And when it comes to those historical narratives, when Russia gets in, it gets in very much with the basically 19th century ideas of what nation is and what nation is not. And that idea is the idea that language and language and nation is, is basically more or less the same. So the model is, if you live in Ukraine, if you speak Russian, and roughly 50% of the population, again, there are back and forth debates, would speak on the daily basis Russian in Ukraine, other 50% would speak uh, Ukrainian on the basis. So if you belong to those 50%, that you speak Russian on, on, on the, as language of preference. The country is really bilingual to a degree that people don't notice that they, what language they speak. And, and there could be conversations in, in two languages at the same time, including on TV. So uh, uh, Professor Bilanyuk studies that and, and knows that, so I, I recommend her publications on that. And then there is lingua franca called surjek, so a mixture, mixture, mixture of those two languages. So, so it's complex. But the idea is that, okay, if you speak Russian, that means basically you're Russian. If you're Russian, your loyalty is really to, to Russia. And uh, that's, that's how the, the, the process of the annexation of the Crimea starts. And that's how the process of destabilization of Eastern Ukraine starts. And it brings different, different results. So if in the, in the Crimea, Everyone was caught completely by surprise, and it went it went basically exceptionally smoothly for the, for the Russian government. By the time the not the similar processes, but but the process of destabilization and use of the same idea started in Eastern Europe, Ukrainian society was able actually to mobilize itself in 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 response to that to that challenge, and it mobilized itself in a very peculiar issue in a very peculiar matter. And that mobilization was across the linguistic and cultural lines. Uh, just recently, uh, uh, the president of Ukraine uh, stated that 60% of those who are in Ukrainian army today fighting in Donbass are Russian speakers. So the, 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 the idea that language equals national identity equals your loyalty either to Kiev to Moscow was basically uh, worked in some parts of Ukraine but was rejected in other parts. So what Ukraine was able to, to mobilize and stop was actually it happened on the basis of a different understanding of nation, what nation is and what is the relationship between, uh, between uh, your ethnic identity and, and, and the language that you use. Um, Uh, another another <clears throat> important theme uh, that goes deeply into into the history, and I skipped Crimea. I, I can go back if we have enough time, and if there will be any any specific questions on that. But uh, I, I'll focus here on another important theme, important for historians' theme in that conflict, and that's the the concept of uh, after the annexation of the Crimea. Uh, Ukraine was faced with ultimatum. Either basically you 
create a system in which each region would have the veto power over your policy on the international relations with the idea that Russia would be able to manipulate that system. Or the country will be actually split in two. And the model was basically creating of this uh, out of the predominantly Russian-speaking regions of Ukraine, creating a state that would be called New Russia, Novorossiya. Uh, the, 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 the state that was modeled, and it's on the upper map, on the, on the, uh, or at least legitimized historically through the existence of the imperial province of New Russia in the late, in the late uh, um, 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. So it's also very interesting in that sense that the ideas that, okay, that the empire somehow here is, fight, is, is striking back, is fighting back were not introduced by, let's say, Ukrainian uh, propaganda uh, apparatus or by, by the American observers, but the idea was there on, 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 the, on the Russian part with the considering imperial history, imperial identity to be a legitimate, a legitimate tool in that, in that struggle, something that would be attractive if you would offer that to, to, the, uh, to the population of Ukraine. So again, something that goes back to pre-1917 history. The Soviet way to deal with the nationality question was absolutely different. So what we see after in the last 10, 15 years, it's really a flashback going to pre-1917 images, models, and understandings of what, what, what the relationships uh, uh, between Ukraine and Russia should be. And last but not least, uh, what is happening is, of course, the mobilization of the Russian nationalism. Uh, mm, we here in, 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 in the West pay a lot of attention to people like Boris Nemtsov, for, for all good reasons, uh, to liberal opposition to the regime, okay, this are uh, our co-religionists, so it's easy to, 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 to affiliate with them. Uh, but if you look at the way how the different groups in opposition are dealt with in, in the Russian context. The liberals are treated, despite all these horrible things, are treated actually relatively, relatively um, not, not as harsh as nationalists. It's the nationalist leaders who are sitting in the prisons. So nationalism is a really basically important and rising force in Russia. For all good reasons, this is the first state, the Russian Federation, the, where the Russians constitute the absolute majority. They existed within the Russian Empire, they existed, they were there b during the Soviet Union, but the, the, their full manifestation, positive and negative, was certainly limited by the fact that there were all these non-Russians out there. The trick was not to scare them away. So now for the first time we have the, 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 the country where the ethnic Russians constitute not just a majority, but a significant majority. And that means that that's, that's, the, that state creates a platform for the manifestations of that nationalism, again, in, 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 all, its, uh, in all its forms from liberal to, to ra radical, that didn't exist before. And people who were fighting on the Russian side in Donbass, who were in the Crimea, got there with some help of the government, and the government sent their troops as well, I mean the Russian government. But many of them went out of their own volition, fighting for the Russian world, 
for the Russian identity, for the Russian nation, against the corrupt influence of the West. So this is something that is not invented by, by Kremlin. This is something that is used by Kremlin in this particular case. But this is, this is a genuine force. And the, the, the uh, uh, figure here is Igor Girkin, uh, the, the person uh, who is uh, apparently a former officer in, in, in the Russian Special Forces, who is proud of claiming again and again in his, in his interviews that he was the one who started the war in Donbass which is technically true in a sense that it was his group that opened fire and, and uh, at, at the Ukrainian security forces first. So he became for a short period of time a major figure in, the, in the, this mobilization of the Russian, of the Russian nationalism. And uh, it, is, it is there as well. Um, so what is, what is really happening here? Um, the, the, the conflict in, in Ukraine, unfortunately, is far from over. But if you would take the, the, the look at it at where it is right now, it's interesting to see that, I'll go back to this map, that the region where the Russians, ethnic Russians, constituted the majority, and this is the Crimea, was outright annexed and included into the, into the Russian Federation. So it's, it's a, uh, criminal offense in, in Russia to suggest that that was done legally or that Crimea, Crimea uh, uh, basically doesn't belong to Russia. The regions where ethnic Russians constituted significant minorities but were not in majority, now this is basically a battleground, a no man's land, and Russia, at least uh, as of today, has no plans of integrating those regions in, in, in the Russian Federation. So one way to look at that is to think about that as something that is, is already familiar and, and is known as Anschluss. And this is basically the idea of the reunification of the nation divided by the borders. So we, we see, again, the, the, these are the images. And uh, again, I'm not trying to uh, make parallels between, between Putin or Hitler or something like that. So I'm, for me, it's important for the, for the purpose of thinking about, about the borders and nations and what is happening. And, and Crimea would, would fit, would fit the, the Anschluss model with, with Austria really, really easy. So Russia is in the process of, uh, unfortunately, but after invading Ukraine and, and continuing this conflict, also redefining what, what they are and who are Russians and who are not, and who belong to the Russian state and who don't belong to the Russian state. What about the Ukraine? <clears throat> well, uh, the impact of the war and conflict on Ukraine is really not clear, but it's, it's all also today impossible to, to uh, overestimate. So if the war, in, when it comes to the Russian media and, and the losses that Russians had in the Donbass is something that is not on the, on the Russian TV screens, not in the Russian media, in Ukraine it's up there. This is uh, basically the, the uh, Maidan, the, the Ukraine's main square in Kiev. So w once you have casualties on the front in the eastern Donbass, quite often those people would be brought here into the center. So the, the, war is, the war is there, and the war transforms 
the, the, the place, the, the, the country in, in a number of profound ways. Uh, this, is, this is the map that I'm using here, but it really belongs to, to a different topic on the Lenin apart, the, 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 the demolition of the monuments to Lenin in, 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 in Ukraine. And it's taken from a wonderful resource. I, I advertise it here. On the website of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, we have this uh, um, MAPA Digital Atlas of Ukraine project which has a number of, of uh, different modules. One of them is on Linapad, another is on language, uh, there is on attitudes to history, the, the Ukrainian famine, and so on and so forth. And you can use it as, as, as a tool, uh, asking your own questions and trying to, to bring different sets of data and try to understand whether they work together, they don't work together, you can formulate questions. Okay, so why, why this map is here? This map is here because it has this division of Ukraine into the two parts, but also more specifically into four parts. So this are the, the uh, presidential elections of 2014. The dark blue, that's where uh, those who voted for Yanukovych, the, 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 uh, Viktor Yanukovych, the president of Ukraine who was ousted as a result of this revolution of dignity, that's where he got 75% of the vote. He was considered to be rightly or wrongly pro-Russian, so 75%. This 50 and over 50%. The rest is the, uh, Yanukovych's opponent, Yulia Tymoshenko, rightly or wrongly considered at that point to be pro-Ukrainian and, and, and pro-European. Pro uh, dark, red, over 75% for Tymoshenko, here over 50% for Tymoshenko. So roughly we can talk about four regions in Ukraine. Now, with Crimea gone, at least for now. With Donbass, is basically either gone or in the process of the war. The map, the, the uh, electoral map of Ukraine changed dramatically. These two red regions are now in the majority, in the parliament. And the laws that the, the parliament passes is actually the laws of the, of the majority. For the first time since 1991, in Ukraine you have a clear majority and clear orientation where the country is going. Before that it was not exactly but roughly in the position that we are here in the, in the United States. 50-50 and it's just, it, it can change from one election to another and Ukraine was in the same place. So there is a change just by the, by the fact of, of, of the loss of, of part of electorate that was considered rightly or wrongly considered to be pro-Russian. But more importantly <coughs> is of course the shock of the war. The shock of the war and that mobilization that I told you about where the mobilization was happening across the ethnic and linguistic and other lines. So now the big, the big issue is there whether that coalition that was formed in 2014 would actually keep going. Because part of the coalition saying you know what, Putin will go as long as he hears Russian language. We should do something and, and move as fast as we can on the, on the cultural front with the, with the Ukraine, which of course scares the, the Russian speakers uh, uh, who uh, basically 
politically are with Ukraine, but actually are, are uh, there to, to, uh, to, to maintain the, the existing cultural practices and so on and so forth. So there, there, there is a tension here and certain things for those of you who follow Facebook and things like that, this, this discussions and debates, at least my understanding of what is happening is part of that, of that renegotiation of the deal that was made in 2014 and what, what would be the next, the, the, the next platform on which, on which the country can work. So, uh, <clears throat> to conclude, and I was offered water, and I... Uh, oh, it's here. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, so what the impact that the events of the last five years had on that long story that I started with the Vikings coming to Kiev in the, in the Middle Ages and, and, and formulation of what, who is who and, and, and what belongs to whom. What, what impact did it? Well, I, I, I would say that it was, this is a profound event that we are witnessing here or people, people in, in the region are living through. While the, the war and the conflict started with the ideas of, okay, repainting one flag with another and the idea, okay, we are all the same people and, and bringing the, the, the historical monument, building monuments to historical figures from Kiev and Moscow and so forth. And the war uh, added to the, to the basically separation of these two groups. Certainly that happened in Ukraine. Ukraine became ethnically much less Russian than it used to be, linguistically and culturally much less Russian. And the, the, the Ukrainian culture is certainly now in the, on the offensive to, to a degree that we didn't, we didn't see that before. Uh, uh, in Russia, when we look at, at the, at the, at the uh, attitudes toward Ukraine, fewer and fewer people now less than then the majority believe that uh, uh, less than 50, maybe 40% or between 30 or 40, still would stick to the idea Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. There is a much more negativity toward Ukraine and Ukrainians that were there. Uh, after, after months and years of saying, okay, they're, 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 these guys are fascists, they're, they're, they're European fascists, they're uh, so um, uh, the, the, the war that, that started with the idea of bringing these two groups together under, under, under the, the Moscow umbrella is really now coming to the, to the situation where the, the two groups become much more distinct from each other than they uh, were ever maybe in the last, in the last uh, 100 to uh, at least maybe maybe not 100, but at least 50 years for sure. So uh, this is, it seems to me, I'm not sure, but maybe it is Nimtsov over there, but I'm, I'm not sure. So the Russia, Ukraine with Putin, for Russia and Ukraine without Putin, this is a demonstration, again, I don't know exactly where, but probably it is in Russia. So clearly the, the, the war will not last, last forever. The situation will change, the, the political, leaders change, the political regimes change, and so on and so forth. But my prediction is that what we witnessed in the last five years really had a major impact on that centuries-long 
debate and discussion that I tried to cover in this in this talk in 40-45 minutes and tried to do the same in 400 pages in the book. And of course, I uh, the most interesting parts that are in the book, I didn't talk about them. <laughs> so it's, it's, it, it's all there. So thank you very much for your attention. And I have the power to choose, or, or okay. <laughs> yes, please. You put this in the context of the last five years. So, for the last five years, what has happened to these uh, Putin narratives of Eurasianism and the Eurasian Economic uh, Union? Is, is Ukraine part of Eurasianism now? Is it part of the Eurasian Union project, or is it, is it outside? Okay. <clears throat> Well, um, there is a lot of interpretations trying to basically, uh, people trying to read Putin's mind. Why, why, why he did what he did, why, why something like that happened. It, uh, I, I, I have my own interpretation, so I can share it with, with, with you, and it's closely related to your question. But it's uh, kind of... A, valid or not, it's, it's up to you to judge. But I, I think that big part of what, what happened there was exactly the attempt of, of uh, Russia to create this viable Eurasian Union. And uh, Ukraine was essential for that project to succeed for a simple reason, not for historical reasons that, that, that has its importance. But, it's the, 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 the reason of the uh, number of the population, the economic potential. So it's the biggest post-Soviet republic after Russia. If you create a Eurasian Union, economic, military, whatever, and you have this huge gap, the second largest piece is missing. The project is in jeopardy. And this is one of the reasons also why the Russians are prepared to, to to do what they do and, and, and certainly uh, face, face the uh, deterioration of relations with the West. Uh, so the, the, the project was still launched without Ukraine. Uh, but what happened in Ukraine had a very, very interesting impact on the Russia's partners in the project. So someone like the authoritarian leader of Belarus, Lukashenko, he, of course, like, like our president, can say very different things in, in the same sentence. But one of the things that, that, that uh, he said was that, okay, Belarus is not part of the Russian world. For those of you who think that, forget that. You never heard about that from, from Lukashenko either in one sentence, in two sentences, in, in any way. So now that's part of his repertoire. How, how, committed he is to that. It's, it's a different question, but that's something that, that he, is, uh, he is saying. And uh, in Kazakhstan, another major partner, well, immediately after these things in Ukraine start, and they're vulnerable themselves in terms of if, if, if the use of Russian-speaking population is, is the, is the, the, the uh, tool for, for international politics and intervention and so on and so forth, Kazakhstan is, is still vulnerable. Not degree as it was in 91, but still. So they immediately discover that their own statehood is 500 years old. 
and they celebrate in the 500 year anniversary of, I don't remember what, Hanate that was there. And more recently, they switched from Cyrillic to Latin in their alphabet. So um, <clears throat> the Eurasian Union, the project is there, but there is a huge gap. And the, 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 the partners that are there, it's, it looks like they're a little bit nervous about, about what, 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 what can happen there. So that's, that's the way how I see that story fit in, fit in the Eurasian Union theme. Yes, please. I have a number of points. Uh, one is the legitimacy versus the artifice. The last point I want to make is when you have the map of the red and the blue, is it the mental model of people who regard 1991 Independence Day as Ukraine was created Independence Day versus the people who this is the resumption of our independence from 1918. So if we carve that mental model and analyze it, it seems that these people see a continuation of a Soviet space because that's what it came out of. Whereas Ukrainians and Western Ukrainians see it as a legitimate history that goes back to the founding of Kiev in 480. There was no Moscow. So we have legitimacy, which is, can be known as truth, on our side versus the artifice and falsity of the Kremlin. So, so let me answer before I forgot uh, uh, parts Thank of you. that. Yeah. Well, um, no, the, the, the map represents it's basically it's a political preferences. And uh, um, uh, the, the question of where, where Ukraine starts or not, I don't think that the pollsters actually try to do that. We, we work with pollsters in, in Ukraine who have the set of questions regarding historical identity. I don't think that is one of them, but there is a very lively discussions now in Ukraine given the centennial anniversary of the proclamation of Ukrainian independence in 1918, whether the Ukraine of today is a continuation of the act of the declaration of Ukraine of 1918 or 1991. So it's a good question, but to which we don't have an answer yet. Yes, please. How important is religion in this divide? Okay, well, thanks, excellent question. Rhetorically, exceptionally important. Practically, not at all. So what, what do I mean? Um, the <clears throat> set of, of values that, that mobilizes people like Igor Girkin, the, the Russian nationalist, to come to Donbass and to risk their lives there, it includes the idea of the defense of the Russianness and Russian orthodoxy against the encroachment from the West. And the Ukrainians are portrayed as just these tools of the West, but also that they're not largely Orthodox, they're Catholic. Well, when you look on the ground, what is happening, it's not just Russian speakers are fighting Russian speakers, it's also traditionally Orthodox fighting traditionally Orthodox. In Ukraine, Greek Catholics, which are Catholics 
of uh, of the um, that that use Eastern Eastern rights. They are uh, very active, mobilized, but they're the minority, mostly in three out of 25 oblasts. The majority of the of the Ukrainians are traditionally Orthodox, whether they're observant or not. That's that's a completely different story. So on the ground, that actually has has very little difference. One thing that actually met, had importance on the ground what were the Protestant, the Baptist, the Adventist communities in Donbass, in eastern part of Ukraine. And the, uh, once those areas were taken over by the rebels, a lot of these actually people were killed, suffered, imprisoned, and so on and so forth. So at the end, this kind of an orthodox the, the, the idea to prove how orthodox we are or they are ended up in going after the uh, Protestants as opposed to the uh, Catholics or Greek Catholics or something like that. But again, so it's, it's, it's very important from the, from the Russian nationalist side in terms of the mobilization, in terms of representation of what they're fighting for. On the ground, yes, with the Protestants, that's, we have horrible stories about that. But uh, the, the, the portrayal of what is happening on the Ukrainian side as Catholic, pro-Catholic, somehow non-Orthodox is, is completely false. Yes, please. Thank you for such an excellent talk. Um, I was wondering if you could comment a bit on the teaching of history in Ukraine um, since February of, nine, of 2014. Uh, well, um, <clears throat> uh, before, before this event, there were major, major discussions among Ukrainian historians on, the, on what, what the textbooks for, for secondary schools should be. Uh, immediately after 1991, the, the uh, model that was adopted for, for those textbooks was basically Ukraine as a national history. Ukraine, Ukrainian history as a history of Ukrainians, roughly. So with, with strong ethnic. ethnic. And, uh, probably for 10 years before this events, there were discussions and debates and the group was set, uh, created special group that were thinking about basically being, making Ukrainian history more inclusive. Uh, partially that was also response to the fact that these textbooks, they didn't work in the same way in different regions of Ukraine. Uh, the 2014 really, really uh, uh, Moved this discussion and debate into a completely different, into completely different areas. So those discussions were not there. People who advocated a more inclusive approach felt that 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 is not the right approach for the war when you have to mobilize. So it's 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 uh, something that uh, I think will be will come back and they will be rethinking and reevaluating. Re but but there was kind of a pause button that was was pushed in, in 2014, but that was an important issue at least for 10 years since, uh, since, uh, um, uh, since the Orange Revolution. Yes, please. So similarly to Professor Lancho's questions about religion, what role does the economy play in the um, eastern part of Ukraine feeling more closer to Russia versus Ukraine? 
and I'm kind of getting more at like the Maslow hierarchy of needs. If, if you can't put food on the table, um, you don't really care about politics and they wanted to get back to it. So what, how did the economy uh, or the lack of an economy in Eastern Ukraine mm -hmm. fall into this? Okay, so the, the, there are two, <coughs> two, two ways, two levels in which that, that works at least what I know and understand, and I'm not an economist. So the first one is that the areas that uh, are, are uh, today lost for Ukraine, those were some of the most economically troublesome areas. So the, the unhappiness was there also for economic reasons. Their economic decline was of a different nature. So Crimea was in decline since 1990, and what killed the, the Crimean economy, which was mostly based on the tourism, is the disappearance of the Iron Curtain. Crimea, it's like Cape Cod, so the, 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 the season, the tourist season is really very short. They just can't compete with the places in Adriatic, in the Red Sea, and that's where the, the Soviet Union that was behind the Iron Curtain, everyone was coming to the Crimea. The Iron Curtain disappeared, people started to go to Egypt, to Adriatic, from Russia, from Ukraine, and so on and so forth. So the, the, the economically Crimean economy on that level is a tourist economy, just the, the, the end of the Cold War delivered a major, major blow to it. So that, that, uh, that part was not doing well. Donbass is basically a rust belt of the, of the former Soviet Union, of the Soviet Union, then became the rust belt of Ukraine. So that was not doing well as well. So that, this, those factors contributed, apart from language, ethnicity, the, 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 those factors contributed. Now, in terms of the choice that they were making, there is a very interesting article by, uh, I don't remember the title of the article, by Yuri Zhukov, who basically a political scientist working here, and he was trying to look at the, the um, mobilization and the, 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 the revolt in Donbass when it started in April and, and May of 20, uh, what was it, 2014, looking at the particular type of the towns where it started and, and the particular type, those were company towns. Either there were mining towns or there was metallurgical or machine building. And what his argument is that it was in the machine building towns that it started first. And the machine, uh, machine building industry, the, that was the industry that was very much uh, dependent on the, on the Russian market. So um, I, 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 I say that and Probably this is the case. I personally have uh, some concerns. Things were starting actually within really short period of time. So how much you can make out of that? It started here on Monday and here on, on, on Saturday, and, and make make a theory out of that. I don't know, but it sounds it, it sounds at least plausible in terms of okay, that that was the economic interest. That's why they were unhappy with what was happening. Yes, please. Hey, I was wondering what the, uh, the Western turn um, has meant for the treatment in Ukraine of uh, minority populations, particularly sexual minorities, given the, uh, the terrible climate that uh, uh, LGBTQ people live under in Russia. And it seems to me if Ukraine wants to differentiate itself from Russia, 
it can start, it, it, it can treat its it's gay and transgender people according to more Western sure, European sure, norms. Sure, sure, exactly. That's 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 the the, the, the aspiration. And uh, what you had at Maidan was basically, again, I was talking about the, the alliance between different groups that were there at Maidan, okay, the, the Russian speakers, the Ukrainian liberals, nationalists, and so on and so forth, and um, LGBT community was very active at Maidan. And that's where they were together with nationalists and so on and so forth. And the, the uh, government generally for the, for the all sorts of reasons, idealistic and very practical. They, they depend on the West for, for, for the financial support and, and on, on the US for potentially supplying arms and so on and so forth. They try to be as, as democratic and as open as possible. But the war brings also the mobilization of the nationalism, including radical nationalism. It's a minority. They never got into the parliament. They never crossed a 5% threshold, which is quite unique for a country in the world compared to, to Poland, to Hungary, and so on and so forth. But they are there, and they're very vocal, and they're very anti-gay anti, anti -gay rights, and so on and so forth. And, and the government is basically trying now to what, what, to, what, what to do is that they had, it seems to me, last year, uh, or the, the gay parade that actually ended, uh, ended very negatively. Police was there protecting the, 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 the uh, LGBT people who, who were there. The, they, they tried it the second, the second uh, time around, uh, and it worked better. They were prepared. I don't exactly remember what, but at least there was no, there was no scandal. So for me, for me, there is, first of all, realization that there is radical nationalism as everywhere else comes with this, with this uh, basically very negative attitude, which has to be handled. But the bigger thing is, is the education of the, of the society as a whole. And society is extremely traditional. And my understanding is that a serious effort and, and resources has to be put into the, uh, into the, into the um, education of the society. Because the government is not a problem. Government tries to do what it can to do, but there is, there is this rise of radical nationalism, which finds actually support, tacit support. Well, no, uh, this is wrong, not support, tacit understanding on, on, the, on, the part, on, the part, on the part of the society that allows all these things to happen. So that's, that, the, that's my reading of that. So basically, it's a long road. And uh, again, uh, uh, it looks like there is some progress in the last year, but, but there are some, some real forces and some real issues that, that uh, the, uh, has to be dealt with. Yes, please. Uh, two questions about Ukraine-Russian relations, apart from the fighting. Is there still a lot of trade back and forth? <laughs> and secondly, is there a lot of sort of TV propaganda back and forth? Okay. Thank you. One, wonderful questions, very, very important ones. Uh, in terms of the radio, uh, uh, in terms of radio, TV, and other things, uh, my understanding is, and again, I, I'm, I'm moonlighting as an expert on contemporary developments. I'm, I'm really a historian. So um, my understanding from what I follow and what, what is that 
the, 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 there are no Russian channels, TV channels that basically now are available normally in, in, in Ukraine. You can, of course, use uh, all sorts of devices to get those channels, but they're not, it seems to me, all offered. Uh, so th that's that's th there is little exchange going there, including the, the books and, and newspapers and things like that. And, and this is a tremendous change uh, because really Ukrainian market in that sense was owned by Russia, and it's it's it's, it's not the case anymore. Uh, in the last two three years, uh, I, I I remember going to the to the bookstores in Ukraine, and I don't know, 80% of things would be in Russian and from Russia. Now, again, I, 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 I'm afraid to give exact numbers, but the impression is that it is reversed. And a lot of things are now translations from, from, uh, from English. It's amazing, uh, and I think this is true for both societies, for Russian and Ukrainian, to what degree novels and, and, and nonfiction and other things from the West, in particular from the US, from UK, are popular there, and, and how much translations are there. So before that, the translations were in Russian. Now the majority of those translations are in, in, uh, in Ukrainian. And there are good and wonderful things, and there is trash as well, but again, the, the, that's, that's not the point. The point is, okay, that, the, there is a change there. In terms of the of the trade, the trade went down, and now it, it's it's picking up, and it's a major internal issue in in Ukraine. Uh, the president himself, who is basically a major, uh, a minor oligarch, but a major businessman, and and becomes unfortunately becomes actually richer and richer. He has his enterprises still in, in the Crimea and in Russia, and, and, and the trade is going back and forth. And you see uh, that there is a rising, rising in happiness from certain circles in Ukraine for that trade going on. And it is because of the mobilization of the so-called volunteer battalions in the society that the trade was it's probably you can't ever stop it completely, but stopped between Ukraine and the Crimea, and between Ukraine and, and the, the um, uh, uh, Donbass areas under, under the control of this non-recognized republics. Uh, some people are saying, okay, this is a terrible thing for Ukraine economically, we are not, Ukraine is not getting uh, coal that, that they have to buy somewhere else. Others are saying, no, the, 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 this is a good thing. So I, I, I have no real opinion on the, on the economic. On, 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 on the economic impact of that, but it's not the Ukrainian government that initiated the stoppage of the trade. It was the. People from outside of the government that that, that were doing that. Yes, please. Just to follow up on um, your answer regarding media is that due to government regulation that has decreased so much or more market forces uh, it, it is it is uh, uh, government regulation in a sense it's it's the laws passed by the parliament and uh, um, the, 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 that affected also the, the market the, the market uh, situation as well so uh, today, uh, if you would, because what was happening before that, again, I don't know how true it is or not, but that, that, that's what I read. 
apparently that the Russian the Russian uh, production was also subsidized, or at least the the, the 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 tax regime in Russia was more favorable toward the uh, publishing industry than it was in Ukraine. Apparently, it's it's not the case anymore. And my understanding now, if you take a book published in Russia and published in Ukraine, and uh, some of my works translate uh, translated in, in in both countries. Ukrainian book now is much cheaper when you turn that into, into the US dollars. So how that happens, what is behind that, I don't fully understand the, 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 economic, the economic underpinnings of that, but that's, that's what happened. Before that, people were convincing me that they couldn't compete that the Ukrainian, the, the, the Ukrainian book would actually would cost more than Russian, even the Russian imported book. Now it changed. Again, I, I don't know the, the mechanics of how that happened. Yes, please. Professor, thank you. Thank you very much for your interesting talk. Would you comment on the decriminalization efforts? Uh, the last time I was in Kiev, there was a concern of the non-government organizations that, uh, yeah, that the, the office vested with the power to decide what is going to happen is government-connected. It's not really headed by the artists, by the historians, mm -hmm. like yourself, but it's connected right, to the government right, structure. Right. Uh, so what you have in mind is probably the Institute of National Memory, yes. right? So, so basically, the Institute of the National Memory under the Ukrainian law initiates or has the right to initiate certain things. But it's the parliament that adopts the laws. And what you see here are the monuments to uh, places, the monuments to Lenin that were demolished between December 2013 and it seems to me March or April of 2014. So these things that were actually demolished by the people on the ground mobilizing <coughs> against the government rather than for the government. Now, once that happened, and that's where the, 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 the uh, um, uh, voting map is, is really very important. Once that happened, and the West, they didn't demolish any monuments because there was none to demolish. <laughs> so the, the West and the center, which are now create the majority, the two regions, they, they're Lenin free by now, by, by 2015. And that's, that's in 2015 that the parliament passes the laws. Mm -hmm. So the, the Institute of National Memory is there, but it's the parliament that passes the law. And the law is basically now the, the, uh, the, the embodiment, not exactly of consensus, but embodiment of consensus between these two regions, and basically passing the law for the, for the East, where there was, as a result of the decommunization laws, most of the monuments removed on the basis of the parliament decision were removed here. So that's that's the, 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 political, the political story of what happened there. So the, 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 there is a tendency of explaining that just by pointing to one figure, Volodymyr Vetrovich, who is an important figure, but not all important. So it's, 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 it's really the, the change of the electoral map and the, the, the composition of the parliament and, and now the, the results of, the, of this kind of a revolution of memory that, that, that we have here. With all pluses and minuses and, 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 and all these other things, but that's, 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 the, that's the frame, that's the background. Thank you very much, Professor Plachy. Um, 
So we invite you to uh, check out Professor Kofi's book, which is available just outside. And uh, yeah. so he will be there yeah. able to sign sure. if you. And in case you didn't hear that, buying the book is the moral equivalent of reading it. <laughs> <laughs>